At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 699th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is raising public awareness about the dangers of gene editing and giving us an update on glyphosate. We have returning guest Jeffrey Smith talking about protecting the microbiome. Jeffrey is a best-selling author, award-winning filmmaker, and celebrated public speaker. He has influenced the behavior and health of millions of people worldwide through his books like Seeds of Deception, Genetic Roulette, and his podcast, Live Healthy, Be Well. Jeffrey is the founding executive director of the Institute for Responsible Technology and has started a global education program called Protect Nature Now with the documentary titled Don't Let the Gene Out of the Bottle which, awesomely enough, won a Telly Award. Congratulations. Thank you. Jeffrey, we talked to you on podcast episodes 590, 629, and 642. Thank you for that, and welcome back to the show. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be here. So I got an email from one of my listeners a while back, and she said, Greg, I heard there's finding glyphosate in rainwater. And it was like, for me, it was like, hold on here, time out. What? How does it get into rainwater? So I immediately thought, I want to talk to Jeffrey about this. So we're going to talk about that first, and then we're going to jump over into gene editing, which is a little bit mind-blowing to the impact that it can have. So let's start with rainwater. Sure. We've known for years, uh, the U.S. Geological Survey has tested air samples and rain samples. So glyphosate is not only in the rain, it's in the air. And it's it's in those parts of our environment, particularly where glyphosate is sprayed a lot. In Mississippi, they found it in 75% of the samples. Through the Midwest, 60 to 100%. Wow. And this means that even if you are making your own food, growing your own food in your garden, you may end up with glyphosate residues in your tomatoes, in your zucchini, in your cucumbers. And I know that there's some farmers, organic farmers, that grow products where they have to test for certain finicky European importers, and they have to not send certain amounts because they'll find small amounts of glyphosate, um, even though they're organic, because it comes in the rain. And I know I interviewed someone that checked out all this organic wine and all these different vineyards through California, and every single one of them, all the grapes, had some amount of glyphosate except one, and they bought that or they licensed that and created wine from there. So it unfortunately reveals about the nature of nature. It's like we knew for years that you could plant corn that's genetically engineered in one crop and then in one field, and it can end up cross-pollinating 
miles away. And if you look at theoretical contamination, as I did with a air pollution expert in Texas, he said, it's possible for pollen from corn to be viable. Normally it's one or two hours, but up to 24 hours. And in certain types of weather that can travel 500 miles. So it's like, it's like the nature of nature is you can't contain. There's most farmers know this. In some cases you can find blue kernels in yellow corn and there's no blue corn planted for miles, but somehow the pollen became airborne and ended up being pollinating as they do on a per kernel basis with the yellow corn. There was uh, in Mexico, they found cotton that was contaminated with genetically engineered varieties. And it was 2000 kilometers from the nearest genetically engineered cotton. And if we think about now it's in the rain, it means it's actually everywhere and it's in our water supply too. Now I talked to a company that does health research institute in Fairfield, Iowa, that does testing for glyphosate. And they said that although they found it a lot in people's urine and later the CDC found it was an 80% of the US population has glyphosate in their urine, they didn't find it in most of the tap water. So that's the good news. It's in some of the tap water, but it's like, if you don't know, you don't know, in which case you may want to get your own tap water tested and then get a a filter that filters out glyphosate and not all filters do, most don't. So yeah. And I can understand how it gets in urine because if we're eating, consuming things, that makes perfect sense, especially if we're eating non-organic stuff. How, any thoughts on how it might get into the rain? You know, I've always assumed it was evaporation and it just becomes Mm -hmm. of the hydrology cycle. Some people think that it couldn't and it must be a nefarious reason. I have no reason to, I don't know about the airborne capacity of glyphosate. Mm -hmm. We know that a, a sister pesticide called dicamba, which is often mixed with glyphosate now, can volatilize and move for miles and then Uh, land on gardens and land on other people's crops and cause damage. And that's been caused millions of dollars of damage. Oh, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's volatizing and, you know, just into the air that which would also, you know, lend to people breathing it. But you know something you said, getting into the urine from what you eat. I've got an interesting story. A friend, Anthony Samsel, who's a scientist, he used coyote urine and put it in a, in a uh, sprayer with a mason jar and sprayed around his organic garden to keep the deer away. And he, was also, he also had a greenhouse and he was spraying Roundup outside the greenhouse to keep the weeds low. He decided when he ran out of coyote urine to try his own. So he sprayed his own urine around and wherever he sprayed, it killed plants. And he was shocked that his urine was now an herbicide. And he couldn't figure it out. He said, well, maybe it was the, oh. and he tested it. He, he actually brought it into his workshop, tested it and said, sure enough, his urine was killing plants. There was no doubt that was happening. And then he stopped spraying Roundup and his urine was no longer an herbicide. And he figured that the Roundup he was spraying was going through his rubber boots because uh, there's, there's a surfactant which drives it through material. And right. talking to the lawyers who were defending the people that got cancer allegedly from using Roundup and they won their case, they took a Tyvek suit, put Roundup on it, and it dripped through. So a suit designed to keep pesticides out, it actually wasn't keeping Roundup out because it's mixed with POEA, which is a surfactant, which is designed to drive it through skin. Well, it's supposed to drive through, through plant tissue, so it gets into the plant, but it also drives through skin and it drives through materials. In fact, it's such a, it drives through skin so well 
that when Monsanto tested their glyphosate, no, their Roundup formulation on human cadaver skin, uh-huh. it was over three times the allowable level of absorption. It was about 10%. Wow. And so I think I've mentioned this in the past. What did they do? They did not tell the EPA that it was a 10% absorption rate or they wouldn't have been allowed to market Roundup. They mm-hmm. took new human cadaver skin, but they prepared it the Monsanto way. Before they sprayed it with Roundup, they baked it in an oven and they froze it in a freezer. Then they applied the Roundup and lo and behold, hardly any got absorbed. And they <laughs> reported those numbers and they just forgot to tell the EPA that they baked and froze the human skin before applying their pesticide. Wow. So it... When, we get, when we're out there in the rain and it lands on our body or we swim in a lake that has Roundup on it, but the lake may have Roundup not just from the air, but if it's near an agricultural field from or it's near a stream that happened to be pick it up from the rain or from the fields, now we're, in the, we're, we're floating in it, we're marinating in it, and it's getting into our bodies. And I read stuff every single week, new research on Roundup and what it does. It's now linked to damaging the blood-brain barrier, getting into the brain, possibly Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and other things. It's linked to new cancers. There's information about uh, leukemia that's important, that's big. There's so much information about Roundup. But if you think about what glyphosate does, it damages the foundation of our health. How How many foundations? Let's count them. It blocks the absorption of minerals. Fantastic number of diseases and disorders can come when you're not using minerals. It damages the microbiome. Practically all diseases, 80% of them, can start with a damaged microbiome. It creates leaky gut. There's There's a report out, all diseases start in the leaky gut. It can damage mitochondria. There's aging and energy and cancer and all sorts of things with the mitochondria. Hormones, neurotransmitters, serotonin, melatonin, dopamine, there goes our sleep. There goes our happiness. There's another reason for Parkinson's. It damages the intercellular communication called the gap junctions. So that's like we can be falling apart. And it blocks the detoxification from the, from the system, both from the cells and from the liver. And then there's so many other pieces like it can cause birth defects. And it's carcinogen. It's a probable human carcinogen, according to the World Health Organization. So wow. we're marinating on it. So, you know, I, there are doctors that have programs to detox from glyphosate. I interviewed several of them and created a program at livehealthybewell.com called Healing from GMOs and Roundup. And in my film, Secret Ingredients, David Perlmutter, uh, a doctor said, you can't eliminate it from your system, but you can reduce it. And the main way to reduce it is to eat organic. So we've looked at what happens when people eat organic. The glyphosate levels go way down, but so too does all these other toxic chemicals. And in a single meal, you go out and have pasta. Now, pasta is made with wheat. Wheat's not a GMO. It's not Roundup-ready pasta. But they spray wheat and many other grains and beans with Roundup, glyphosate-based herbicides, just before harvest to desiccate, to dry it down. So... A colleague of mine, friend of mine, had a pasta dish while he was being tested for glyphosate every day. His glyphosate spiked the next day and then went down. So he was eating generally organic, generally healthy, but one night of pasta and that was it. So the, the, the takeaway is we need to do things to minimize our exposure. And I wouldn't run around and be scared of the rain, but you want to focus on organic eating, which is primary. And it's interesting that when people switch to non-GMO and organic, they end up getting better from a long list of diseases. So I published a, uh, an article in the International Journal of Human Nutrition and Functional Medicine 
where I reported on the results of a survey of, of 3,256 people uh, who reported getting better from 28 different conditions. And the 28 different conditions matched exactly what people told me when I surveyed 150 audiences, including medical conferences. What do you or your patients get better from on a non-GMO and largely organic diet? And, you know, digestive problems and, and overweight and fatigue and brain fog and allergies and depression and anxiety. Every, that was over 50% of the people reported getting better from those, all of those. Wow. And so the rest, you know, basically every major disease you've heard of was reported getting better from. So when you switch to organic, there's a lot of benefits. Yeah. Amen to that. So really eat and grow organically. That's the big takeaway here. Yes. Eat and grow organically. And when you're not eating out of your own garden, buy organically or someone else's garden stuff. There you go. And the other thing we want to talk about today is something that's a lot newer on the scene than glyphosate and Roundup, and that's gene editing. Oh, yeah. And the last time we talked, we you had just started, I think, just started the research and it's come a long way. So let's go. Let's talk okay. about gene editing. What is it? I'm, I'm going to first uh, uh, promote a six-minute film, okay, which we're just releasing, called Seven Reasons Why Gene Editing is Dangerous and Unpredictable. Six minutes animated. Now, the reason why we created it is that the biotech industry is not good at creating safe products. <laughs> They're really good really? At, lying, at lying about their products to media, academics, and particularly governments and farmers. Those are the four areas where they mount a huge, enormous, multi-million dollar disinformation campaign. And our organization pioneered information on the health dangers of GMOs. I spoke in 45 countries, and we helped organize a whole movement that resulted in 51% of the U.S. population, 41% of, 48% of the world's population now correctly believe that GMOs are not healthy for them. And the biotech industry <clears throat> looked at that and said, we are coming up with new gene, gene splicing and gene editing technologies to create, genetic, to create GMOs, and we want to convince consumers and governments in a way that we don't fall prey, fall prey to what happened with GMOs 1.0. So the GMO 2.0 is it's it's now supposedly safe, it's natural, it's precise, it's predictable. Hold we on, should this just is what this is what the biotech, the biotech industry is saying. Saying this, yes. Yeah, I don't say it. Although you here just heard me say it. And they say it's <laughs> they say it's preci it's precision breeding. They call it precision breeding in the UK. So they have convinced, and here's where it gets really threatening in a way that most of the listeners have never considered how big a threat this is. It starts with the fact that governments are now deregulating gene editing, abandoning all safety requirements, and in many cases, even the requirement that the company that releases a gene edited plant, animal, or microbe even let them know that they've now introduced it. So the U.S., it was just uh, pro proposed in, in Canada by Health Canada, proposed in the UK, already passed in India, passed in Brazil, Japan, Argentina, many of the big South American countries completely deregulate gene editing. That's what I was going to ask, what got passed, the deregulation of gene editing. Well, And, and you said governments convinced. Convincing governments is all about writing a check, I would guess. It has a lot to do with that. But the thing is, Monsanto's methods for convincing they're a lot more sophisticated. We, because of documents made public from a lawsuit, 
we know how they organized a campaign to orchestrate outrage over the World Health Organization's declaration that glyphosate was a probable human carcinogen. They have a bunch of front groups that they pay, checkbook science, where they would write things for them, talking points or actually articles. One was published in Forbes. There were some scientists that, that were, had ghost-written materials who created an independent panel. They, they ghost-wrote a review paper. They organized campaign to try and discredit the World Health Organization, to defund the World Health Organization. I mean, it was a massive multi-million dollar campaign to protect their billion dollar uh, revenue generator in glyphosate. They also have manipulated and captured regulatory agencies. So in the EPA, one of their people, one of their people, one of their uh, manipulated lapdogs was Jess Rowland, who was in charge of the committee at the EPA evaluating whether glyphosate was a carcinogen. <laughs> and he chose Monsanto's unpublished, you know, rigged research. We already talked about that, what that looks like, and mm -hmm. said, no, there's no commitment. There's no connection here, but didn't choose the peer-reviewed published studies that the World Health Organization uses. Not only that, but he told his Monsanto handler when there was a threat that another government agency was going to evaluate glyphosate and carcinogenicity, that could have blown the cover of EPA because if the other U.S. organization under NIH said that it did cause cancer, it would have shown that he was actually cherry picking the science to force the conclusion of safety. So he told his, his handler, if I can stop the research, I deserve a medal. <laughs> so, so this is how Monsanto works. But yeah. I, I, having traveled to so many countries, I'm aware, I usually I'm greeted by the, the anti-GMO leaders in that country and we do a download, we get complete briefing. And I learn which are the government agencies and government ministers who have basically been captured by Monsanto. And they, anytime there's big agriculture in a country, they mm -hmm. do that. Sometimes they'll capture a farm organization, typically by giving the organization money directly, but also giving them a stake in the money that gets generated by GMOs. I wow. remember talking to this one guy who said that in the first conversation, he was in charge of determining whether GMOs should be allowed in the country. And the first conversation, he told me this, but he said, I can't tell the world which country or who he was, but it was a significant country. He said, the first conversation with Monsanto was basically, they said, after you approve these GMOs, you should get a very well-paying job with Monsanto. Oh my gosh. Which is legal bribery. It's like, it's not illegal bribery, but they've been caught illegal bribery. So in, in Indonesia, they were caught with 140 inappropriate, questionable or illegal payoffs to individuals to try and get their genetically engineered cotton approved, but the cotton was such a disaster and overrun by insects, even the 140 bribes or questionable payments where they got fined by the US Department of Justice for $1.5 million. So it was it was they got caught red-handed. The the Indonesian bribes didn't didn't do much. Wow. Well I want to track back over to the your video. Gene editing. Gene editing, yes. Gene editing. Let's yeah. I get to bring in all these things, right? Okay. I know, right? That's why I love talking to you. So they, all these countries are saying, you can gene edit anything you want. Now. What, what is gene editing? Okay. So gene editing is a new way to alter DNA. In the past, when you wanted to create a genetically engineered crop, you had two techniques. You would coat thousands or large numbers of little microscopic beads of tungsten or gold and put it into a gun and shoot that gun into a plate of millions of cells, hoping that some of those genetic constructs that were coding 
these tungsten balls would get into the DNA. So it actually would damage the DNA and then the repair mechanism would bring it in. Or you would you would put there's a there's a agrobacterium that that generally designed naturally to smuggle genes into plants to create tumors uh, for trees, you know, these big these big tumor yeah. type things. They would take out the tumor genes and put in whatever they wanted, put that into a, um, a mixture of set plant cells, and it would smuggle the genes that they wanted into the genome. Now, in both of those cases, it's a random insertion. It's either a scattergun or like, see what happens when you figure out when you work with this agrobacterium. So both, with, of them, both of them are a mystery. Yeah, a mystery. Really and, and the thing is, both cause collateral damage yeah. in the insertions and all that. And then they will clone the result into a plant, which causes hundreds of thousands of additional mutations. So with gene editing, like CRISPR, it's won a Nobel Prize, et cetera, et cetera, you have these genetic elements. One is a guide and one is a scissors. So the guide has like a, a little clipboard saying, okay, we're looking for these sequences. Mm -hmm. And when we do, we tap the, the fellow with the scissors and say, cut here. So the two get attached and they, let's say they go along the genome as they need to, oh, here it is, let's cut. And so when they cut, they might have a payload of an additional genetic sequence so that when it gets cut, that payload gets added or they're cutting in a certain way because they want to dismantle a gene there. But they know that once they cut, then the alarms go off in the DNA, in the cell, the fire chiefs come, the, the paramedics come, and they quickly repair the cut strand. And when they repair the cut strand, they'll grab what it needs nearby, and they'll stuff it in there, or they'll try and create a sequence so that it becomes whole again. Now, what's interesting is when we look at what happens in gene editing, even though they say it's precise, safe, and predictable, here's the things that can go wrong. And this is all in the animated six-minute film seven reasons why gene editing is dangerous and unpredictable. One, it gets caught and cut in the wrong place. It can be cut in many, many places up and down the genome that you don't anticipate. Mm -hmm. There's a little computer program that looks at the similar genetic sequences and says, if it cuts there, well, do we, do we think it'll be a problem for the genome? Based on what we know, probably not. <laughs> so they're, they're willing to do it. And of course, they don't know much about the functionings of these other parts of the genome. So they're willing to risk cuts. But it turns out it cuts in many places that there was not anticipated. And that in itself alone is a significant problem that can result in all sorts of side effects. The side effects for food are the potential reduction in nutrition, increase in allergens, increase in toxins. Then once it cuts, then the repair mechanism done, initiated by the cell uh -huh. can wreak havoc. It can delete genes. It can flip genes around. It can add genes. It can multiply genes. But it can also add material that happened to be in the Petri dish. Like when you put it in the Petri dish, you put a serum from, from cows and goats or goats. So mm -hmm. you know, DNA, retroviruses even, from those DNA end up inside a mouse accidentally because they gene edited a mouse and then those, you know, the paramedics inside the DNA, inside the cell just grabbed it and put it in there. When you use a bacterial plasmid and use that to bring in the gene editing machinery, that agrobacterium, and it, you've cut the DNA, now pieces of that plasmid, that DNA, end up getting stuffed in there. So that happened to these gene edited cows. The cows ended up with antibiotic resistant 
bacterial genes in every one of the cow genes, which could oh, wow. be deadly and dangerous. So it could be sloppy repair, which causes damage. It could be mixing genes. And then there's a technique called knockouts. And this was used to knock out the gene in mushrooms that turn the mushrooms brown when sliced. So this company, this company submitted a letter to the USDA and said, do you need to regulate our gene edited, CRISPR edited, knocked out mushrooms? And the USDA said, no, we have no rules or laws that govern whether you can introduce that into the food supply, nor did the FDA, nor did the EPA, no oh one in the God. government. So they approved, so to speak, by abandoning all levels of approval. They said, you can do whatever you want. We'll just call it breeding. We don't have to approve breeding. And two years later, it turns out this knockout technique fails one third of the time. And the gene that's supposed to be silenced will continue to produce proteins. Mm -hmm. But some of the time, the protein that it produces is not the full protein by the full sequence. Instead, part of that sequence gets truncated or mixed up and it produces a mutant or a truncated protein which can be potentially deadly wow. so, or allergenic or toxic. So it means that these mushrooms, which have likely never been tested for whether their knocked out gene actually creates these mutant proteins, that could have been introduced into the food supply and killed people and no one would even know that there was a risk there. So the mutant proteins is the fourth out of seven particular dangers which we talk about in this animated film. So we'll have that in the show notes. So I really want to encourage you to go watch that. Really, what's the message you want people to take away here and what do you want them to do? I will leave the rest of the seven, and rather than being a, a plot spoiler, I'll leave it for those that watch and you'll see that it's not just damaging that generation, but other generations, we'll leave that. When we think about what could happen with gene editing, we know that it's not regulated. We know that it's prone to side effects, but there's two other pieces for this formula for disaster. One is that GMOs persist in the environment theoretically forever, as long as the species exists. The only thing that lasts longer than the self-propagating genetic pollution is extinction. So you're now creating accident-prone genetic combinations and releasing them into the environment without any safety studies. The fourth, which makes it an absolute crazy situation, is that gene editing is now so cheap and easy, you can do it at home. CRISPR will be standard equipment for high school classes all over the United States and Europe. Soon. What? It's already being used. You can get a rudimentary CRISPR kit for $169 online, but for $2,000, you can build a home kit and have so much flexibility, you can mail order CRISPR pieces and mail order microbes or whatever you want for the price of dinner. So you're in a situation now where we have handed over the keys of the kingdoms to everyone. Anyone, anyone can redirect the streams of evolution permanently at all times, at all, for all time, with a technology prone to side effects without any safety restrictions. So that in itself means, first, our food supply. We could see over the next decade, hundreds or thousands of different types of foods being introduced that are gene edited and no one would know. Like in Canada, you don't have to tell the government, 
I don't think you have to tell the government of the United States. It doesn't appear to. I don't know if that's official, but I think if people get away with it, that means people, it'll be flooding the food supply without any testing of the safety and without any testing to verify that it's now a GMO. That'll certainly get into organic. It can certainly get into the seeds so that you'd be buying genetically engineered seeds without knowing it. That's already happening with the traditional gene editing. It'll get into non-GMO project verified because they can't necessarily track it if it's a flooding the system. So now our food supply, where we had oasis of organic as a trusted source of food, which we talked about a few, uh, a few minutes ago, because mm -hmm. of the lack of glyphosate and other chemicals and also GMOs, now it can be theoretically contaminated with GMOs in large order. However, it doesn't stop there. That's just the food supply. Uh -huh. Now it's open season on the genome. There's nothing off limits. So people are thinking, well, we can stop this particular disease in citrus and we could stop this, this, this disease in, in soybeans caused by Roundup and we could stop this mosquitoes. We can eliminate mosquitoes. And basically, we can improve nature. And, and the thing is, it's motivated both by well-meaning scientists uh -huh. and profit-seeking companies. And then there's the security issues and the government issues, which we don't have to get into. So this means that if we allow this to happen, we could be seeing a permanent corruption of nature's gene pool, which is essentially a replacement of nature, so that future generations will not inherit the byproducts of the million, billions of years of evolution. They'll inherit problems that they'll have to deal with and be forced to pass on to future generations. Well, I think we're already seeing that with celiac disease. Didn't uh, celiac disease show up dramatically bigger after the introduction of the Roundup Ready stuff? So this, this goes back to chemicals. See, there's chemicals and then there's GMOs. Yeah. There are two different ones. So a chemical, a chemical spill or chemical use, well, it's the, a spill will generally dissipate. There are things called forever chemicals which seem to stick around forever, as their forever. name suggests. Yeah. PFAS and all these things end up around, but it can it can theoretically break down over time. But GMOs self-propagate, so the parents give it to the kids, who give it to the kids, who give it to the kids. Mm -hmm. Now we are seeing celiac and gluten sensitivity very very closely correlated with the use of Roundup, and it's not Roundup ready wheat because the wheat's not GMO, right. but the Roundup is sprayed on the wheat just before harvest to dry it down, to speed up the, the ripening, to clear the, the weeds away in the next, for the next season. So it's, it's helpful for the farmer, but the glyphosate, and there's a lot of reasons for this, we don't have to go into it, appears to be largely responsible for the explosion of gluten sensitivity in the United States and other places in the world. There are other reasons. There's the new gene the new genetics of the, the wheat, the way it's prepared and all this stuff. But the glyphosate appears to be a primary driver of gluten sensitivity and celiac. And I've written on that and I'll be speaking on that soon. So, a lot. Yeah, it's true. So <laughs> the idea then, when we go back to the GMOs, yeah. is that if we do a wide angle lens, we're at a pivot point in human history and in natural history. We have a new technology that can change everything. And it is not ready for prime time. It is being promoted by companies like Monsanto Bear using lies. They gang up on 
lawmakers and regulators so that everyone tells them the same talking points, the people that are in the Farm Bureau, the people, all these things. And so we can't get in the room. There's a top genetic engineer, Michael Antonio, a friend of mine, who does human gene therapy research at King's College London. He couldn't get into the room when these committees were making the decisions in the UK. Wow. By design, because yeah. the, they locked him out. I couldn't get into the room when I was trying to convince the state ministers of agriculture of two states in Australia to tell them what's going to happen if they introduce genetically engineered canola. I was able to get into the other state's ministers and talk to them because they hadn't made their decision already. But the state ministers in two states in Australia, they had already made the decision. There was already a financial pay payout for some of the farmers there. And the disaster happened just as I would have told them would have happened. But they never got me in the room. They never allowed me in the room. So right now, the truth is not getting in there, which is one reason we wrote, we created the six-minute animated film. Mm -hmm. It's short enough. It's visually, visual evidence. People are visual learners. If I simply say, oh, gene editing is dangerous, and then the biotech industry says, oh, no, it's not. There's a consensus. You've been disproved and whatnot. They're just going to, you know, he said, she said. Yeah. Okay, here's seven reasons. Why did I do seven? Because it becomes a checklist, a gauntlet. You have to respond to each of these seven. Mm -hmm. Why did I do it six minutes? Because that's the tension span of of a legislator. <laughs> Maybe that, <laughs> you know. Right. Why did I do it animated? Because I wanted people to see what actually happens in the genome. And you can see it, the cuts in many places. You can see mm -hmm. the, the deletions and additions. You can see something called chromothripsis, where the gene it gets shattered and then recombines in a completely different order. Wow. And all of these are based on peer-reviewed published studies, mm -hmm. including Nature, who describes the changes from CRISPR as chromosomal mayhem. Wow. And what are you wanting people to do? You have this great organization you've created. Tell us about the organization and what's our next step here. Okay. So our GMO 2.0 campaign is focused on two things at present. One, to create proper, appropriate safeguards for the use of gene editing. Gene editing may be fantastic for research on the DNA. It may be fantastic for healing individuals with genetic defects. We're not in favor of creating changes in the human genome that can be inheritable, mm -hmm. but individuals with genetic defects, gene editing might be their savior. But we want to stop it from being used for food or outdoor release. So we are building and coordinating and collaborating with a global movement to do just that. And if you go to responsibletechnology.org, You'll see some information there. You can sign up and get our, our calls to action and how you can help. And please make a donation because we rely 100% as our 501c3 runs on donation fuel. And it's very important that we expand our capacity now because this is a worldwide problem. Stopping it in one country is just not going to help. We need, right. to be, we need international regulations, international treaties, et cetera. The second thing that we're focusing on, if you look at all the things that can be gene edited, what are the organisms that are most dangerous? What are the ones that carry the most urgent threat? It's clearly the microbiome, the microbes. Mm -hmm. If you genetically engineer cows, like the gene-edited cows that were designed not to have horns, these are the ones that ended up with bacterial genes in their DNA. The, the developers didn't know it. They said, oh, this was perfect. 
And the and an accompanying letter in the publishing journal said, this was so perfect that we should deregulate all gene edited livestock because it obviously is precise and predictable. Two years later, it turns out, they found out that they had made a mutant cow bacterial combination wow. that they never checked for. Mm-hmm. So they were already breeding these hornless cows in Brazil. And when they discovered that they had bacterial genes in their DNA, they killed all the cows. Now, how dangerous is it? How quickly could those have caused real danger for the planet? Well, you've got the mother cow, you have the gestation period, you have the, the kids, maybe another gestation period, then the kids have to grow up and become, you know, and give birth. So it takes a while. Right. You release genetically engineered microbes, and within hours, you have more zeros in that number than I can name. You know, it's beyond the billion, whatever. And then, and then it can travel. We didn't need a pandemic to know that microbes can travel and <laughs> mutate. Right. Right. Yeah. So now it's now you've may have released it to, I don't know, do something to benefit a farmer in Arkansas. And then pretty soon it ends up in the in the breast milk of a mother in Alaska or in the in the infant. And so it gets into other ecosystems, including human beings. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't end there. Microbes swap genes with other microbes. And now you have you've just armed 100, 100 microbes or 1000 microbes who then go to a thousand ecosystems and then swap their genes with each another hundred types of microbes. And you're changing the nature of nature for the microbiome, which is known to be mission critical for human health and the environment. Mission critical, absolutely essential. Small changes in the human microbiome lead to disease. And we're making potentially unrecallable permanent changes in the microbiome with genetic engineered microbes. And if you think about the fact that the high school Science classes are going to have CRISPR. They'll have a catalog of the CRISPR changes, and they'll have a catalog of the microbes that they can use. They'll Mm -hmm. have combinations that they can put out. They're done and say, great. It ends up on the hands of the kids. It ends up in their mouth when they eat lunch. It ends up flushed down the toilet, which is an environmental release. Multiply that by all the kids doing the work. Multiply that by all the schools. Add to that the corporations doing theirs, the home hobbyists. It's not a stretch to expect a million varieties of GM microbes released in the next generation. A single microbe, if you look at the film, which we talked about in our previous interview, if you go to, um, if you go to uh, protectnaturenow.com and look at the film, Don't Let the Gene Out of the Bottle, you'll see one particular genetically engineered microbe. If it had been released, it could have theoretically ended terrestrial plant life, destroyed terrestrial plant life on planet Earth, in theory. And you'll see why, and and it's all in there, 16-minute film. And now we're talking about releasing a million of them with no regulations, no guidelines, in the hands of adolescents, school teachers, home hobbyists, and companies like Monsanto Bear. There you go. So your website? Responsibletechnology.org. I want to say again, hmm, that we need support, financial support. And I want to recommend that people make a monthly donation of an amount that they can afford. So we know it's coming each month so we can put it in our budget. We know that this income is coming. We want to build that community, open offices worldwide, create a global movement quickly. We built a global movement for 26 years. Yep. I don't have, we don't have the time to do that now. We got to do it quickly. Yeah. And then the other thing is this, the solution to this forces humanity to grapple with their new ability to destroy. The technology 
requires a higher level of responsibility, which means it redefines relationship. Instead of looking at nature as something to customize based on the whims of whomever, we realize that, the nat that nature's gene pool is sacred and vulnerable now like it's never been. And that because it's humanity, even an individual, as you'll see on Don't Let the Gene Out of the Bottle, one individual creating one genetic combination could create a global cat cataclysm. We realize we can't democratize nature and hand over the keys of the kingdoms to humanity. We instead have to redefine our relationship with the natural gene pool and safeguard it, be protectors of nature, hence the name Protect Nature Now. So there's actually a silver lining here, Greg, that just like when someone has a life-threatening disease and they overcome it and they look back, you can hear them often say, it was a blessing because I had a chance to dot, 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 fill in the blank, mm -hmm. change their life. I think consciousness is non-local and non-linear, that humanity moves as a whole, that consciousness has interaction. Whether that's the case or not, we are like the person that has a diagnosis of a potentially fatal disease. And it can be the blessing that we need to redefine our relationship with nature, to redefine our own role. So I, I am not at all pessimistic about this. I think that we now have a capacity to create that messaging and that impact on the whole world right at the time when we're facing this threat. And the threat, we just had a pandemic, so the concerns about the microbial kingdoms and the awareness of it is higher than it's ever been in the history of humanity. Yeah. So it's, it's like teed up this movement to be successful so that we can protect the nature of nature so that future generations will bless us instead of curse us. Yeah. Wow. Thank you very much. That's, I always love talking to you because we always wrap it with a, we can do something about this. So thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Jeffrey. Thank you, Greg. Great to be here. Again, remind us how our listeners can get a hold of you. Responsibletechnology.org. And that for those that were interested in the healing from GMOs and Roundup or helping you switch to an organic lifestyle, livehealthybewell.com. That's also where I get, you can get my podcast. Podcast, absolutely. Go, you know, go listen to his podcast. It's amazing. I listen to it regularly. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash protect microbiome. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.